Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions and games. On today's episode, we're exploring the decision space of the Palaces of Carrara, a Cromer and Kiesling gem from a number of years ago. And if you've never played this game, don't fret. We'll provide you with all the info you need to seek your teeth into this episode and satiating decisions this game offers. Also, a quick update for you all. Uh, we are going to do an, a What's On My Mind segment, but thanks to the feedback of a lot of wonderful listeners who have said that one of the things they love most about our show is how we get right into the meat of our topic. We're going to do it at the end. So if you like hearing about what Jake and I have been planning, uh, maybe a little bit of news from the gaming world, stick around for that What's On My Mind segment at the end. I bet Jake will also throw a timestamp in the show notes. And yeah, if if not, we're going to get right into the meat and you can expect classic decision space uh, gliding into the content. Let's do it. A Kramer and Kiesling joint. <laughs> it, you know, whenever we've covered one of their games or have we done it? I don't know that we've done a together Kramer and Kiesling game on the show before. We've done El Grande and Love El Grande, which is uh, not both of them together. We've done Azul, which is, of course, not both of them together. So I think this is the first uh, dynamic duo Kramer and Kiesling game that we will have actually played. Uh, or yeah. discussed on the show. That's correct. Let's get into it. Awesome. Well, I'm going to let you do the honor, Jake, of doing your synopsis or your your thoughts, not your synopsis, your thoughts on this game and your rating. Yeah, well, now that we're official, we've got our Patreon, we've gotten a lot more listeners recently. I am going back to my old habits of not preparing anything. So nice. you're this off the cuff. I'm giving Palaces of Carrara an 8.5 out of 10. This is a game I really, really enjoyed every single play of. I think it's a game that has a very simple toolbox that it's presenting players with. A toolbox of things that you can choose to do on your turn. But the way they combine, the way you can manipulate it, it really feels like uh, a sandbox that has a ton to explore. I feel like this game has just unflowered more and more with every subsequent play as I realize what's possible to do in this game. And that is something that I've thoroughly loved to explore, thoroughly enjoyed in a game that I want to continue to play after we you know, move on to our next game next week. Awesome. Every few episodes, I give Jake a really big smile whenever he says a score. Um, and I'm going to read mine and then I'll say why. The Palaces of Carrara is an efficiency race game. I'm curious to see if Jake agrees with this. You can see the finish line from the start, but you don't know exactly how expensive running each leg of the race will be, and you can't be totally sure the route you intend to run at the outset of the game will still even be available if you wait for good deals on the wheel. This is in-your-face tense Euro bliss from start to finish, and I dare say an ungrockable delight. 8.5 out of 10. Let's go. Yeah. So <laughs> crossover. <laughs> completely aligned, like always. We're going to bring you the the Sheath Swords episode of not disagreeing and just diving into why we really enjoy this game. And maybe a little bit of why, why is it not a 9 or why is it not a 10 for us? But I think that there's a ton of interesting systems and decisions here that resist this modern ethos of you have to uh, present all of your decisions and equip your players to make uh, informed decisions at the first play. I think that one thing that really struck me about the Palaces of Carrara is it took about five plays to really feel comfortable with some of the systems at play. Yeah, I mean, it's such a simple game at its core. Like when you talk about rules complexity, I just don't think there's very much here, even when we're talking about, as we will, the advanced version of this game, at least to me. But playing this game now on my eighth, ninth, tenth plays, I'm playing a completely different game than I was in those first two plays when I'm just feeling my way through it for the first time. I'm so glad that you mentioned that it's not about rules complexity, though the rules can be a little bit fiddly, but they're not complex. It's not a heavy game by any means. It really is because of the consequence of actions, the consequences of players' decisions on the game state that makes it a game that feels ungrockable. So we're going to get more into that. Uh, but for all you pre-planners out there, the people who like to play games along with us, uh, whether that's in our game group, on our Discord, or just on your own in parallel with the show, I want to let everyone know that next week we're going to be doing a Decision Space deep dive into Evolution Climate, 
And then we're going to do a What We Talk About episode on tempo, uh, pacing, maybe initiative, timing in games. Generally, uh, we'll see. It'll be really good. Uh, so be on the lookout for what we're going to cover next. But before we get into this, a little bit of game background on the Palaces of Karara. So as we already said, it's designed by Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer. Uh, it was published in 2012 for the first time. And recently... It has a second edition. It went up on GameFound. When you're hearing this, unfortunately, uh, you probably won't be able to snag the active GameFound, but maybe there's a way to buy into it after the fact. Um, so it's been updated and re-released in 2022 uh, with new rules. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the differences, but I want everyone to know we played the first edition version of this game, the one released in 2012. Let's go ahead and get into your rules overview to give people a better idea of how to play this game that probably they might not be super familiar with. In the Palaces of Karara, players collect stones to build buildings in pursuit of endgame scoring objectives. The game's ending is dynamic and occurs when any player at the table completes the game's three scoring objectives, or in rare instances where all the game's tiles are built. There are three key ways in which players interact with the Palaces of Karara. They'll collect stones from a wheel in the center of the table, build buildings to six locations on their personal player boards, each location corresponding to one of six different colors of stones in the game, or they can score their previous work using one of their six scoring pawns, sometimes directly blocking others at the table from scoring opportunities in the process. The game's stone wheel has six segments. If a player collects stone, they rotate the wheel by one segment and refill the wheel so that in total there are 11 stones across all of its segments. After doing so, they choose a segment to purchase stones from. As stones rotate along the wheel, they're discounted such that stones become increasingly more affordable the longer they've been on the wheel, eventually becoming free to take. Stones follow a color hierarchy that corresponds to how rewarding the buildings they're used to build are. For example, white stones are used to build in Livorno, which provides a three times victory points multiplier. Gold stones, slightly worse than white, are used to build in Pisa, which give three gold. Red are used to build in Luca, which provides two victory points, and so on, down to just one gold for building with black stones, the game's least valuable stone. More expensive stones can be used to build in less lucrative locations, which creates tough decisions about the opportunity cost and overall financial efficiency of when to buy stones of specific colors and also use them to build in maybe less lucrative locations just so you can get a building up. Importantly, the more lucrative stones are, the more expensive they are to purchase on the wheel, and the longer they'll have to remain unpurchased before becoming free. Rather than collecting, a player may use previously collected stones to construct buildings in one of the game's six cities, each corresponding to a specific stone type that must be used to build buildings in that city. Buildings have a few key features, a value, a type, and a color. Its value denotes the number of stones it takes to build it and also its scoring potential. For example, a value 5 building costs 5 stones to build, but when scored triggers its corresponding city scoring condition 5 times. This means if you build a value 5 building in the white city Livorno, which provides a 3 times victory point multiplier, scoring this building tile would provide 15 points. When building in the red city, on the other hand, Luca, which provides a 2 times victory point multiplier, that same building would provide 10 victory points when scoring it. Its type Type, on the other hand, corresponds to a set collection scoring minigame, and its color, city or country, factors into a secondary way to score as well. This brings me to the game's final action type, scoring. To score, players expend one of their six scoring pawns to score a building type, a city, or in the advanced version, a tile color. Players may only score six times in the game, and each city may only be scored once, meaning the first player to score a given city will be the only player to score that city. Palaces is all about the tension between getting good deals on stone, scoring at opportune times, enforcing endgame conditions when the timing is right for you, and ideally when your economic engine has just barely sputtered out. Once any player at the table achieves each of the game's active scoring objectives, the game ends immediately. Each player scores one additional time based on some endgame scoring conditions, and the player with the most points is declared the victor. Thank you, Brendan, for giving us that rules overview. Amazing, as always, immaculate, profound. You <laughs> really just get better each and every week. 
Thanks, Jake. So let's get into characterizing the decision space. But I will say, jumping off of that, I think as we go through, we're going to do our best in this discussion to make sure to highlight important mechanisms, because I know the rules of review is a lot to digest if you've never played the game. So Jake and I will do our best to ground our discussion in important things you need to know about the mechanisms we're discussing. But that decision space, how do you characterize the decision space here, Jake? Do you think it's a waning decision space game? That's such an interesting question. I think the overall thrust of the game is waning and that is significantly dictated by the scoring in this game. Uh, so over the course of the game, you have six scoring markers, um, which you can use to score one type of thing on your board. That could be a city all the buildings you have in a city, or it could be all the types of buildings that you have across cities that you've built. But, you know, those are the key moments in the game, like when you're choosing to use those, and those are diminishing. So I think when I take a look at the game as a whole, the overall thrust is sort of that of a waning decision base around these scoring tokens and how we're using them. One interesting thing is a lot of the waning decision space games that we've talked about before, right, start really big. Uh, you have tons of options, tons of decisions you can make, and they have this sort of like straight linear path downwards, uh, sometimes maybe with little bumps in the middle. And I, I think Palaces is interesting because of the wheel. It, I agree. I think it's a, a waning decision space game, if only because so much of the game is about timing the how how much you invest into your economic engine and getting the timing of the end game just right. So and the scoring uh, conditions, like you said, factor into that too. But then because of the nature of the wheel and things being discounted as the game goes on, the tile set, the available pool of tiles that you could pick from changing, um, what cities have even been scored, I think it feels more dynamic. And there's these like moments maybe you score your your green city that you've invested four buildings into and you're going to get this influx of like 25 gold all of a sudden you, it feels like it bumps up a little bit again so it is trending downward but it feels a little bit dynamic in how it plays out and i think that importantly so that's what keeps the decisions interesting in terms of the wheel yeah and the wheel itself is dynamic too like just pure and simple like it's completely all over the place that's a great point i definitely think you could make a strong case for this as being like an overall dynamic game of course it almost has like an engine building component to it totally as you're you know trying to build your uh buildings in a way that is going to maximize the singular time you're scoring it by putting a lot into just one city or by building the same type of building all over the place that when you score them you get a ton of money or resources and in that way it feels waxing so now i feel like maybe i'm sort of talking myself into a, a dynamic feeling for this game i think the fact that you went to the scoring objectives though is so important because it is so limited right like you have six and you might not even get to use all six of them you probably won't if the game ends before you use them you probably won't right so I think in that way, too, I, maybe I'm just talking myself into dynamic as well, but you feel the pressure and the tension of a waning decision space game, right? You feel it, even though it a lot of the way that the decisions present themselves don't necessarily feel that way. I think this could be a good way to sort of characterize the decision space as a whole. And why I found it so interesting is that it really is an engine building, right, waxing decision phase that is restrained by an extremely waning scoring mechanism yeah and that is just like a lot of decision space terminology that <laughs> might not mean a whole lot to you unless you've really been along with us on this journey so we're going to try and sort of break that down more as we go but i think i think you could kind of describe it as that like this a waxing gameplay with like yeah. a waning decision space Totally, which is super interesting. I think that's one of the things that has really drawn me to the game, and I suspect you, is how different as, in terms of the decisions it offers it feels than a lot of the games that we've played. I think we're kind of pivoting into talking about some of the core tensions in the game, which will help people who haven't necessarily played it before. So you talked about how it feels a little bit like an engine building game because you start uh, with 20 gold. Buying stone is so important and getting a good deal on stones of specific colors as you try to group these different colors of the six stones so you can focus your efforts into certain cities. You don't want to overpay. You can always use stones of higher colors to build in lower cities, but generally, outside of a few key decision moments, you don't want to overpay. Though when you do, you can end up feeling really smart if it pays off. Um, but overall, I think one of the core tensions really is how much do I invest my engine into getting more gold? 
through scoring these uh, gold city locations, right? How much of my time, my opportunity cost overall in the game? It's really a game about timing opportunity cost too. We're all trying to figure out how long is this game going to be before someone fulfills all the scoring objectives versus how much do I invest in the victory points? And if you go too hard in victory points, you're going to run out of money and you're going to have mistimed it completely. And if you go too far into gold, you're not going to score enough victory points and you're going to, you might outpace everyone on stones, but who cares because you're not scoring. And I think that is, that's the ungrockability of this game layered into the timing piece of who knows when it's going to end. I love this term that you've used like three times so far in this episode, ungrockability. (laughs) (laughs) I I really feel like there's this element of ungrockability to this decision space. And even people who play like tons of games who I I would say can sit down in our discord, I should say, and can grok games the first time around. I think this game is like it's fighting back against that in every way because so much of how the game shape unravels is based on decisions that you don't know what other people are going to do and the implications of them haven't happened yet it really is this like dynamic length race game in some ways because of the input of how much the stones cost Um, so if you're paying a lot for stone um, the game like if you wait for all the stones to get cheaper it's going to be a longer game the goal in my mind is like, I want to finish this game with zero gold, having built all of the perfect buildings in just the locations I want with no leftover stones. And that's impossible almost. It's so hard to do that. But that's because it's just about timing the end game just right. And I think really quickly, I think you'll respond to this and it will be interesting is you said it's an engine building game. And I totally agree, except it's an engine building game where you basically want to fire off your engine once. Right, exactly. Maybe twice. Yeah. yeah, but just like an engine building game, right? You start out building up your economy of resources, right? To play this game perfectly efficient, efficiently, you want to do everything that you just described, but also you want to start out by scoring buildings that are going to generate gold, gold for you in the first maybe two times you score. And then the second two times you score, you want to generate like exclusively points. And then that's it. The game is over right then. So it is in that way, right? Engine building game of generating an economy and then turning that into a point generation economy. But it's just punctuated on like four to six distinct moments in the game, uh, which gives you as a player a lot of agency over like, now's the moment that I'm switching. Yeah, and I love that. There's also this really good healthy tension at the beginning of games where I feel like everyone, because you start resource rich in gold and you have no, basically no stone. You start with maybe one black, black, the worst in the game, or maybe one blue, um, the second worst in the game. Uh, and then you're going to, but you have 20 gold. You have this, all this purchasing potential. So the game at the start oftentimes is just, okay, we're going to turn the wheel and I'm going to buy this, uh, this stone color. And then Jake's going to turn the wheel. He's going to buy this stone color. And then maybe I'm not going to turn the wheel at all. We're playing the advanced version where you don't have to turn the wheel when you purchase. So I'm not going to turn the wheel at all. I'm going to buy these greens because now they've been discounted to three now that it's been two turns in the game. And now it's Jake's turn. And oh, he's going to turn the wheel just one. And I think there's this really good back and forth tension around who's going to be the first to build something. Because when you're the first to build something, you do get this little bit of an advantage because every city requires at least two tiles, uh, two building tiles being built in them to score that city location and some of them require three and only one player can score any one city in the game so if jake scores the green city that gives two two gold for every building tile there i'm never going to score it so my efforts there aren't necessarily wasted because i can still score those buildings later if i score the type i've just it's like blunted my ability to to run that aspect of my engine and i love the game of chicken that plays out of sort of like waiting to see when you should buy waiting to see and then you build up build up build up and then you buy a bunch of building tiles right there's also everything in this game is hidden information right it's like hidden trackable information in that technically you can see every single block that your opponent has picked up from the wheel but you're not going to be able to track that and similarly the same with money right you'll know generally how much your opponent has been buying uh, but you're not going to know exactly what Uh, they have which can create these like really rewarding skill testing moments where turning the wheel is what you need to do to more efficiently purchase right that makes everything you would purchase cheaper but a lot of times you will hesitate to do that because that will allow your opponent to then turn the wheel once more on their turn Mm -hmm. and 
there could be four or five blocks in a space that are then going to be two notches cheaper. But if you can time it so that you know your opponent is very unlikely to have very much currency to spend, and you can turn the wheel on your turn to buy, and then turn the wheel again on your next turn because you know your opponent can't buy to get then that super valuable slot of a ton of resources, that feels incredibly rewarding. And it's just a really just one of the many ways this simple set of mechanisms creates like really fascinating interaction between players. Not only this, right? Like the, I feel like playing with you, one thing that's really developed in terms of our meta is the importance of, you want to make the most of every action, right? It's a board game. It's about opportunity costs. So at least a lot of efficiency board games about opportunity costs. So you, a lot of times these, the white and yellow stones, the most lucrative ones in the game that give a three times victory point multiplier for VP or for gold, the stones will get down to being pretty cheap instead of costing the five or six that they cost at the beginning of the game. Maybe they only cost one or two. But because of the way that the segments, uh, people are buying stones out of these segments as they're turned, and then it's refilled at the start, by the time they get there, there's maybe only one stone, two if you're lucky, of either color in that segment when they're really cheap. So you can take the buy action, uh, but you're only getting one stone for taking that buy action. You're spending your whole turn to get one stone. And is it worth it? Is it worth it for it to be cheap and spend a whole turn doing that? And the answer is sometimes, I don't know, maybe it's, it's, it feels ungrockable. Uh, right. It depends on the game state. And that's so cool to me is that there's also that costing layer layered over all of this as well, because all of your actions are so precious. I mean, that takes us right back to what you led with, which is this game is inherently a race game. Yeah. So it really puts a premium on action efficiency right as you mentioned there's the cost of action efficiency by taking a single cheap costing versus the cost of you know resource efficiency and these things are always in flux because this is it's like hard to kind of talk about this game because it's just like complicated but essentially if you buy a yellow city each block there is going to generate you three gold so buying a four block a four gold block to go into that city is like inherently inefficient except for if you do it early in the game you're likely to score that block multiple times, both by scoring the yellow city, if that's what you're going for, and by scoring that building type. So it kind of, uh, there is a pivot point in the game that can be hard to miss, where or, or hard to see at the time, where all of a sudden you're no longer going to be scoring blocks that you're purchasing twice. You'll only be scoring them once or potentially zero times before the end of the game. So the real cost, of blocks is also something that's like constantly a moving target and then there's also on top of all that it's the sort of not only that but i'm also denying you the opportunity to buy the yellow and if i can just get one building down in yellow uh in uh what is it pisa then i'm gonna you know make it way less appealing for you to go heavy in yellow and maybe they'll get discounted for me later on so maybe a good strategy is buying some of these blocks early because so much of the game is about focusing your efforts into these cities so you can build tiles of matching colors and not overspending. So if I can make yellow really unappealing to Jake early on, maybe I'll get some deals in the you know first third of the game where he's discounting the wheel to try to get his engine going um, and take advantage of that. And that's like another thing that you can kind of factor in as well. But so much of this goes back to that core central tension and of the game, which is really how long will this game be? How many turns is this game? Because without knowing how many turns it is, you can't do the mental arithmetic on how much you should build up your engine before you pivot to scoring or how much you should focus on, you know, building certain building types, which we haven't even gotten into, right? If you have five blocks of a color, you could, and there's a five building tile, a three and a two, all of the same type. Do you invest it all into the five, knowing that you want to invest more in that building color later in that city? Or do you just buy the three and the next turn buy the two efficiently spend because you want to get stuff on the table as quickly as possible. I think we should clarify a little bit because it's just, I think it's going to be hard for people listening at home who haven't played this game to like understand what we're talking about, where you could like buy the five, then you put it in the three sure. and the two. Sure, you sure, know sure, what I'm sure. saying? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So just to reiterate, and I'm sure you probably mentioned this also in your rules explanation, like each of the six cities in the game where you will put buildings into, you can use different types of blocks to go there. So the cheapest one, you can use any type of block there. Um, and in the second cheapest, you can use any type of block there except for black. And then yeah. the third cheapest, you can use any type of block except for black and blue. So it becomes more and more restrictive all the way to the top where you can only use the white blocks to go there. Um, 
and the white blocks cost the most. This tension that you're pointing out is the fact that you always want to use the worst, cheapest block color to go in the city to play the game perfectly efficiently. If I'm buying a building in that cheapest city, I would use exclusively black blocks to buy it, which creates a really interesting tension throughout the game where if you have four blocks and one red block, which is kind of in the middle, is it still worth it to buy a five cost building to go into there? Or should, maybe, maybe there's no four cost buildings available in the display. So should you wait, uh, you know, or use a turn to buy a single black block? Maybe, maybe not. But you're constantly evaluating in every purchasing decision, how much are you going to weigh that action efficiency doing the most you possibly can in a given turn versus the cost efficiency like those are constantly butting heads in that way i think it would also be important to clarify something here which is that there's two different ways to play the palaces of Kara. there's this sort of introductory game which the game it and the rule book vehemently is sort of like you must play the introductory game as your first game and it is right you should definitely play this game using the introductory scoring your first time playing. And that's a really, there's these three scoring objectives. It's score four times, uh, collect a certain number of these little tokens tied to scoring buildings, uh, or build buildings paying at least this number of bricks. So these scoring objectives give you a good sense for the feeling of um, how the pacing of a game will change. Because once anyone has, ach has achieved all three scoring objectives, they announce the end of the game, uh, everyone gets one more turn up to the first player, and then it's just over. Uh, but there's also a secondary way, which is randomized scoring objectives. And I think that contributes uh, a lot to why this game feels ungrockable to me as well, because this combination, whenever you start a new game and there's new scoring objectives on the table, with the base game, it's tough to tell how long the game is going to be. And with the new scoring objectives, that can really vary in what they look like and what they're asking you to do. It can be even harder to determine how long the game will be. So mm -hmm. all of this. And sometimes to Jake's point about the, the block color, you might, right? If you're never going to use that red brick to build in the red city of Luca, who cares? Just spend it on something else, somewhere else where you are going to build. But if there's a chance, then you're overspending. Um, and, yeah. and that tension's great too. And on top of that, like and even another tension there is then you also want to go back to what we said at the very beginning of like, this is essentially an engine building puzzle. So yeah. you want to be putting your blocks early into the cities that give you gold. In our most recent game that we're playing now, Brendan, we haven't even finished. I got five white blocks very yeah. early in the game. And so I could build a five cost city, which is going to help with one of the end game scoring objectives. And do I put it into the white? city that's going to give me you know a bunch of points for this over the course of the game or do i do a horribly inefficient play for you know cost and put it all into the yellow city that's going to give me a bunch of gold and i picked the former but it's very possible that the latter would have ended up being right because it just feels so bad even to like early in the game like i have no engine for money i only have this like great point yeah. scoring engine so now I'm doing this different kind of race of like, okay, how the heck am I going to try and <laughs> finish this game before I inevitably get outpaced by Brendan? Uh, so there's just constantly, you know, the decision space in every single building choice is just incredibly rich. Definitely. And I think ugh, it's so impactful, that decision. It's so interesting because I saw you build the, in that, in the white city, Livorno, I believe it is. And I sort of I didn't even question it but it it is so interesting because because I'm sort of addicted to the efficiency of building in that white city and I love like collecting the white blocks building them there because they score so much but you're going to be so hamstrung because you've spent so much of your money on those white blocks <laughs> it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out I feel like right now it might be a good time to pivot to talking about the costing wheel in general yeah because so that. many of the decisions in the game happen on that costing wheel and it really it, it can feel, I don't know, I, I think wheels are everywhere in board games and they've come in and out of favor, whether it's uh, the wheel of Zolkin and its worker placement mechanism uh, to the wheel in Palaces of Carrara. Michael Kramer has another, or excuse me, uh, Wolfgang Kramer has another, or maybe it's Michael Giesling, another game with a wheel called Vikings that came out around this time as well. And I think wheels have kind of like disappeared a little bit and rondelles have taken their place. But I think in general, this sort of like 
rounding action of rising and lowering of tension as you move through a space is really interesting. And I think there's some really smart decisions with the wheel, one of them being that there's always 11 bricks at any one given time. So whenever someone buys a large amount of bricks from a specific spot, they're going to refill. But it's so rare that you ever choose a segment and buy literally every brick from it at the start. So they slowly get spread out. Um, I don't know. I love that. How early on they're all grouped up and then they get picked at and picked at and picked at until only there's these little, you know, the leftovers. But someone's going to pick them up because they're going to be free. And that's enticing. These free is really powerful. I think it's an interesting point about the wheel being something that kind of comes in and out of favor um, in board games. I think like if I'm going to start uh board gaming public opinion polling firm and my prediction would be that like wheels and like rondels are just like i feel like every time i listen to a podcast they're like yeah rondels rock like let's get more rondels in board game but like the actual like consumer market for board games doesn't match that which is probably why i I think there's like that tension right like why are they not showing up in the market as much despite all the commentary i'm hearing being so in favor of it that's just an aside that's just my a pet theory about the rondelles and the wheels um but here i do think it works you know really well i'm trying to think of a different mechanism that could have created the same sort of thing like maybe you you know draw another card out of a deck and put a certain number of yeah, you slide cards down. Slide it down. Maybe that's how it would be done today or done differently. But I think it works well to kind of like create this really textured costing system. Um, it creates a ton of player interaction. I already discussed one example of how it really forces you to try and pay attention to how much money people have. And of course, what type of blocks they are collecting and going for. Um, to perhaps force them into a play where they have to use an inefficient color of block to complete a building uh, that they really need to complete for their engine. Um, And I think it really accomplishes that well in a way that might not be intuitive when you're first checking out the game. Uh, And really, you know, it's not, I, some of, some of the discussion in our discord has been like, well, you know, the wheels not that interesting either, but it just, is like a simple system that really works to accomplish the goal admirably. I think. I think the wheel is also hiding a lot of complexity in terms of the interesting decisions that it creates because it's doing work for you because there's a lot of, so there's the pairings that happen when bricks come out of the bag and get placed on the wheel, right? And refill. Those pairings are really interesting. And then there's the pairings of what people, but then eventually from that grouping, bricks or stones or blocks, whatever, we're going to use all these words, I guess, uh, are purchased from there. So then maybe the wheel turns and some more are getting discounted, some more are getting discounted. And eventually there's going to be moments in this game where I really need one block of a certain color, just so badly, or I need something more expensive. Um, And it gets to a segment where it's like, okay, you can buy exactly what you need for a little bit more expensive than you want and something you don't really want for a good deal. Um, But because of the opportunity cost in the game of like buying is really important and you want to get the most out of every buy. Maybe I decide to buy that that stone of the color I'm not as interested in. One, just to deny it from someone else. Or two, because I need to make the most of every turn that I have. So, okay, now I'm in this color. And now how am I going to make the most of investing in this color of stone on top of the one that I really wanted? And I think those sort of organic pairings do a lot for the game that are really interesting in how they force you to function highly tactically. Uh, The advanced version of the game adds in, I think, a little bit more strategic depth. It adds some eight-cost tiles, which are incredibly expensive, um, but they also give you these like bonus scoring conditions where you can change how certain cities work or maybe change how the scoring of certain types of tiles work that add strategic depth, but at its core, it's a highly tactical game, and I think the wheel really is what helps create that. Again, it's just like this really cool core tension in the design where your decisions are so tactical, but the fact that the scoring is so limited and punctuated to these moments that that forces you into strategy, like making strategic decisions early on in the game. Like I'm going to try and be the person that scores the white city uh, yeah. or the green city because the cities themselves can only be scored once by anyone in the game. Uh, so that is like this, you know, again, that's a race. It's a race to the end as well to get those bonus points. Um, so I think like 
every turn feels tactical, but at the same time, it feels like a very strategic experience overall, right? It's again, a tension in the design. I was going to ask you, do you prefer the way the wheel works in the advanced version of the game where you don't have to turn the wheel? You could just buy where it's at and, you know, which would be paying more when you could choose to pay less or where you have to turn the wheel on every turn before buying. I love how the advanced version doesn't force you to turn the wheel, that you get to choose if you turn the wheel before you purchase, um, just because it adds that one little extra layer of depth to the decision making. And I think it's good that the introductory rules don't sort of overcomplicate, just okay, turn the wheel and then purchase. Um, But I think it's super interesting and adds even more skill testing opportunity to the game. Which do you prefer? I think I prefer the advanced version as well, but it's close. Like, I think you're right. Like the advanced uh, version rule gives you another opportunity to make an interesting decision, which I like. And it gives you an opportunity to like feel smart about yourself um, because it's hard to know in that moment if you're actually making a decision that's beneficial to you or not uh, because of the hidden information that your opponent has. But a lot of times like when I'm like, I'll just buy this here and force Brendan to turn the wheel so that it won't be it'll be more expensive for him because i don't care you know about this one extra point like that feels good to me um i don't know but i do think it's like a fascinating thing to kind of like to i just think it's from a just a design perspective it's fascinating that that would be one thing they would choose to change between yeah. the introductory and the advanced version of the game because there's no reason you couldn't play the introductory version of the game with like the advanced wheel rule totally yeah no definitely it's it in some ways it's interesting too because sometimes you really don't want to turn the wheel right like discounting blocks because if Jake if you turn the wheel then I'm going to turn the wheel right so it's not just about discounting some blocks one space if you know you're not going to buy the blocks right you turn it on your turn it discounts them one then you know on my turn I could turn it another so it's really if you're not going to buy certain blocks it's you're talking about for your next opponent in a two player game discounting blocks by two ultimately in terms of if i want the blocks yeah and if there are three or four blocks all grouped up that are you know one color yeah that are one color like three blocks three spaces away right from from affordability for you like knowing that two turns a wheel gives your opponent some great value it's nice to have that option but at the same time right you that's something you just have to consider in the other version of the game as well and maybe you choose not to buy and instead you build a cheap building you build a cheap building or you build a building using an inefficient combination of blocks that you already have in your supply yeah. to now put that decision back on your opponent and that's fun too so yeah and you it's not can like a strong preference for me I, I like both ways honestly yeah i agree it's also i will say that one thing is in higher player count games the wheel is just going to be turning more and right. i do like that the in the advanced rules the wheel turn might turn slightly less but I also love the purchasing decisions and forcing players to make the tough purchasing decisions in situations like that and forcing that tension really down their throats. So yeah, it's sort of like a win-win. I think that it's only this way in the rules just to reduce complexity as much as possible. Right. It, it sounds funny, right? Like it's, it's such a simple rule. You can turn the wheel or not, or you must turn the wheel. But I think this game does have just enough texture in its rules baggage that I do think it's smart that they sort of said, okay, you must turn the wheel in the introductory version. Yeah. I said this game wasn't very (laughs) complex, but like I just listening, I'm trying to like take myself out of this conversation we're having for a second. And like anybody hearing the conversation, I think it's going to come across much more complex than it is because every single like rules thing in the game, like once when you sit down and watch a video or somebody explains it to you, it just makes sense. Like it's super intuitive Euro game design the way everything is costed the way the wheel works the way the buildings work and score like it's it's hard it's just a lot harder to like talk about than it is to play in practice i think too you know we have a bad history of comparing games to eggs and i'm going to take my opportunity here i think in some ways the palaces of carrera is a bit like making scrambled eggs it's not that hard of a dish to make once you learn the rules it's a pretty simple game but, but learning to make scrambled eggs can actually be kind of tough. Uh, and it takes some instruction. It takes some time. But once you're familiar with it, okay, I'm half asleep. Easy enough. I made scrambled eggs. There we go. Right? So it, it's not that it's complex. It's just a harder learn than maybe it, it seems like it should be. Yeah. And I think a, and half of that is just because you don't freaking know the consequences of anything that you're doing because 
So much of it depends on the decisions that will come. So a lot of it's just about familiarity with its systems, which is going to come with playing it more and more. Yeah. Also outside of Palaces of Carrera itself, I think there's just some things about games that make them harder or easier to explain in an audio format. And this one's hard because it's like so much about like cost efficiency of six different colors and how that cost efficiency fluctuates throughout the game and uh, over the various actions you're doing. Uh, Where like a lot more complicated of a game because there's just like more of like a foothold in like theme or whatever yeah. uh, is a lot easier to convey. So I just don't want people to be afraid of this game. Another yeah. game that was kind of like that, I feel, is So Clover, this like mm. party word game that I've been loving. And, you know, I remember I like heard about it in a few podcasts and just had like no concept at all of like what the game was until I like actually like looked at a copy of it and saw it and in front of me and I was like okay like nothing could be more simple so I don't know that's just that's just an aside like not to be put off by what might sound like a very very complicated like mathy game it doesn't play that way well we're on this small detour I have a question for you do you think this is uh Kramer Kiesling's response to the castles of Burgundy so you're asking me a question about designer intent yes that's a tough one to answer <laughs> I mean, and I'm asking you to speculate. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'll speculate. Of course, that's that's what I'm here for. No, I, you know, it doesn't strike me as that similar of a game to Castles of Burgundy. I get it. Palaces of Carrara is like using the exact same sort of like naming convention, but really the mechanisms between the two games like couldn't be more different uh, for a Euro game. Um, Building buildings to a personal play space. I mean, I guess, but you're not really doing like any, I wouldn't call that mechanism in this game tile placement at all, where like there's not a spatial is, there's not a spatial component. I think if anything, like it's definitely plausible that they use the same naming convention because Castles of Burgundy has all this success to, to bring up that idea and like try and like generate comparisons to that very well could have been like a marketing strategy. But I, I guess I would say, I don't think the two games are really very comparable in terms of mechanisms. I don't want to stay out in speculation land too long, but I will say I do wonder. I I think that there is this component of the randomness on the wheel that is sort of about mitigating input randomness in terms of overall efficiency throughout the course of the game, right? In Castles of Burgundy, it's about getting the most of specific types of dice and using your workers to manipulate those dice. In Palaces of Kara, it's waiting for the right time to take the right action and getting the best deal you can on it. And I'm not saying that the games are all that similar. I just wonder, somewhere in the back of my mind, if there's this little germ of where it spawned from. But I think we should move on and maybe talk about scoring and cities. Yeah, I feel like I don't want to just like go on a path and be like, they're different because of this other way. Yeah. Like, Jay, they're different games. Like, we all know that. Okay, I think the scoring is really, really interesting. And I think this is where it's hard to talk about the scoring in this game without bringing to the fore the concept of tempo, which mm-hmm. I know we're going to have a bigger deep dive uh, discussion on what tempo means and all the various different things that are often construed as this blanket term tempo. But in the Palaces of Carrara, I think tempo matters for this reason. And it is primarily built around the fact that each city can only be scored once. So there are six cities in the game that all the players are building buildings into on their personal player board. But as soon as one person takes that city spot, nobody else can get any points from all their buildings in that city at once. Again, it's kind of hard to explain, but there could still be some value to you by having buildings there by scoring that building type on your personal player board, which everybody could score the same type of building on their personal player board if they wanted to. But you can only do it once. It's important to say that everything you can score in this game, you can only score once. Right. So each of the cities, have you have to have a certain number of buildings in that city before you can score it. So for the more valuable ones, uh, the white and yellow, you have to have two buildings built in that city. And I believe all the other buildings... Uh, you have to have three built in it. Um, so what that creates in terms of tempo, going all the way back 
to my point after explaining again the convoluted rules that are actually very intuitive when you start playing um the reason that matters for tempo is because say i have one building I have a one building advantage in the yellow city. So I have one building built there. Brendan has zero. Uh, if it's, you know, it's a three person game, nobody else has any. The dynamic is so tense between building Brendan ever choosing to build there again, because I have the tempo advantage in that city. If he builds a yellow city on his, or a yellow building in the yellow city on his turn, and then I build a second on my turn, if he then builds a second on his turn, I score it and he doesn't get any value for that. So it has this like tempo gate on, that's the term I'm going to use, Brendan, a tempo gate that there are six of on every single uh, city in the game where somebody has is going to have tempo advantage there and it's really difficult, if not impossible, to sort of overtake somebody if they're watching out for that. Um, so... I found that like really fascinating uh, tempo considerations, considerations in the game when I'm playing with you, playing in a three or four player game where I'll just have one the one building early on yellow and then I'll just wait and I'll build up yellow blocks over time. And as soon as anybody builds one there, like I'm ready to pounce and build a second building there uh, to where I'm actually getting even more advantage than just scoring it because I'm like forcing other people into making inefficient plays with the hopes that they'll be able to score that twice by scoring the city and the building type but they don't they've already been checkmated and they don't already know it does that make sense to you brendan it makes complete sense and i think it's so interesting right because there's this tension of okay i want to build the highest value of tile in these more lucrative cities because I want to take advantage of the multiplier. So if I build a five tile in the yellow city and then I score the yellow city, I get 15 gold from that three times the five of the tile, three gold from scoring that city, five, the value of the tile that I built there. But if I do that, it's going to be much harder for me to build a second building there as quickly. So there's also this little bit of a game of chicken where it's sort of like, okay, I think Jake overspent in terms of going into he built a five building of yellow as his first building, maybe I can beat him there and I can build two cheaper buildings there and just score it. And it's not my optimal path. I'm just really trying to block Jake. So I'm building into building types that I'm later going to score for more victory points. And in doing so, I'm going to get a little bit of gold from scoring this yellow city. But I'm also, more importantly, going to deny the player who's invested more into the city from scoring it. And they wanted to invest more into it overall. And I love that tension, too. Um, it's so, so interesting. And then there's also Jake then has this advantage, right? If he gets down first, maybe you just sort of say, OK, I'm not going to build my second building. I don't want to do it yet. I'm just going to wait and I'm going to wait and I'm going to wait. And then you wait and wait and wait. And there's this sort of like passive pressure on the table of you already being a little bit ahead on that building tempo in that specific city that gives you flexibility that you don't have when you're tied with someone. And that's really interesting, too. And if nobody forces you into building, uh, right, your second building, especially towards the end of the game, say you have the tempo advantage in the white city that's worth three points per block in the buildings you have placed there. So I put one down. Everybody's like, well, there's no point in me putting one down. So they wait and wait and wait. And then I drop another five. Like, I, So I accrue a bunch of white blocks over time as they get cheaper. And I drop another five white block building in that space. And I still don't have to score it because there's no pressure on me to score it. So I can wait again until I get more and more uh, creating this like massive points potential that now people almost have to respond to. So there is like that tension there too, where you can't just like completely forfeit something unless, you know, the game is going to imminently end otherwise. Um, so yeah, there's, there's like, I think tempo is just so enormous in the scoring potential in this game, because like having that tempo advantage in any given city on the board, especially the ones that are really valuable at the end of the game are, is giving you this advantage in two ways. It's yeah. like forcing somebody to respond to you and them responding to you is inherently inefficient. Definitely. I'll also say, I think that scoring in this game is just really fun. Waiting and waiting and waiting for the perfect moment and then putting a pawn down and getting this huge influx of gold or victory points just feels good. 
And then also the fact that you get to score the same things multiple times because you're going to score, hopefully, the cities that you build these tiles in. Then hopefully you've built, you know, all these villas or all these estates or churches. I think they're actually called cathedrals of the same type across all these different cities. So then you pick the right moment to score this one type of building tile. You get it all paid off again. Then maybe you're playing in the advanced version and you get to score all of your orange tiles or all of your green tiles. So you get to do them all again. Um, it just, it feels good. It's just a fun mechanic that like allows for tension to build and then all release at once in a really fun way. And I think yeah. that release, importantly, it's that release that is the fun because you have that tension building up the anticipation and then it all happens at once. And this huge amount of opportunity costs gets expent, paid off. Ooh, boom. It's so good. Yeah, totally. It, there are just some games where it's just like everything in it is fun. Like yeah. it's fun to get blocks on your turn. Uh, it's fun to build buildings because there's like, we've, we've talked ad nauseum about the interesting choices that go into like what buildings you build, what you pay to build them and where you put them and how interesting the wheel is. Maybe not quite as interesting. That might be like the one part of the game that just feels like a little bit down. Sometimes you buy like one block and you're like, Ugh, I just have to do this. And that's like not a very exciting turn. And then there's scoring, which is like this hugely impactful moment. One thing we've talked about in a lot of these episodes is uh, games that force you to call your shot. Mm -hmm. uh, and it feels like that whenever you place a scoring pawn down that you're like making a declaration, like I know this about the game state. Like this is the right time to score this because like I need money now and I'm going to start turning on my point engine at this point in the game and that's the right time to do it versus waiting to score more or to get more buildings down to score more coins uh when 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 you put down that block um so yeah it feels like making a bet which i think is something that's really fun in games quick question a difference between the entry version of the game and the advanced version is there's those level eight buildings that i alluded to earlier uh that are really expensive but also give you a bonus to scoring in a certain city or a certain uh, tile type when you build them. What do you think of these? I like them in the game. Yeah. I think it gives you like an even greater sense of building up to something. And when you place it down, like you, it feels amazing because not only do you have this like eight cost building out, that's going to score you a bunch of points or coins when it's scored, hopefully twice in the game but also getting a bonus that makes one of your cities produce more points or coins. It's like that those bonuses feel absolutely huge in the game. And so I, th I think it's like a very much like it, the game forces you to build up to. Uh, and when you put one down, it feels like you've really pulled something off in a satisfying way. Or doubling the scoring potential of all of your green buildings. That's that's like wild. Like that's crazy. Like off the wall. That doesn't feel like a euro mechanic at all. You just literally double it. Uh, I think that's so cool. Uh, like uh, the, I use that one one time where every time I'm scoring in the white city, I'm scoring six victory points. Um, I've obviously invested a ton to get there as long as I'm using green buildings, but it just feels so good. And I love that this game has room for stuff that feels less focused and more off the wall than it seems like it should um right. the system just is so strong that it resists this like ability to fall apart in the face of these things um and and i think part of that is just how much the wheel keeps things together it, there's this tightness to all of the math in the game uh that is just excellent that you expect from these sort of german designers and it's here and it's so good um but yeah also, you can upgrade into these level eight buildings, which is another little layer. Maybe this game is slightly more complex than Jake and I like to admit. Uh, but I think that's an interesting decision, too. Do I do I cover up a building to go into one of these level eights, giving up some of the the breadth of buildings that I have, which represents scoring potential to get a slight, you know, turnover turn discount, not overall discount on how many blocks I'm paying. I think that's a really interesting decision, too. So should we kind of pivot and talk about things that like, what, why is this game not attending? Yes. I mean, we've just been glowing about it uh, this whole time. Yeah. I think that one thing that can be, even though not every game feels the same, um, right? Like the, the different scoring objectives really do change how games play out. They change the length of games. They change what you should be doing at different points in the game. But I do think a lot of the decisions feel kind of similar. Because the types of buildings are just types of buildings that pre represent 
collecting that type of building that is a multiplier. There's nothing special about them. The game can start to feel kind of samey. And it's all so incremental in terms of the decisions on the wheel and building that the scoring decisions are big, but they're big for me. They're not big for everyone at the table. Like when when you're going to block a city, everyone knows you're going to block the city two turns before it happens. So that can be a little bit deflating for reasons that we talked about with Tempo. Um, So I think those are things that make the game feel a little bit less surprising and interactive and more fun from an efficiency puzzle standpoint and make me really like to play it, but hold it back from being a nine or a 9.5 for me. What about for you? Yeah. Even though as we play it, like new strategies are like revealing themselves. Like the game we're playing now, you started out by building an eight cost building first. And I was like, wow, I hadn't thought about that. Like that's going to completely change how this game is. And now I'm like on my heels trying to like buy up every single building I can that shares the building type with that so that you're not able to like maximize the value from building type when you're already going to be maximizing the value from scoring it in that city. I'm like, wow, that's really crazy. But I do think my feelings are very much similar to yours, right? Like when, like, even though that is like going to create a game that has like a new shape, the decisions still feel like I'm playing with those same tools. Like the toolbox itself, going back to my rating is limited. And even though it creates something like much more, like the tools are still limited. Like it's still like, you've got like your hammer when you're buying building, you got your like nail, which is like the blocks and you got, I don't know, a screwdriver <laughs> and, and like you can like you know arrange them in different ways but you know you've kind of like once you've played this game once you've seen or once and then once with the advanced thing like you've seen everything in the game it's just the difference in, in how they come out i think it's in that way it's like very similar to something like emotep which is like mm. always going to be yeah. like very similar but it doesn't mean like the decisions aren't incredibly satisfying and fulfilling every single time which is why of course we both gave this a very high rating Definitely. Even though this game came out in 2012, I think there's something that feels incredibly classic and old school about this game, that if you're into that sort of really focused, no extraneous uh, anything design aesthetic where everything is serving its purpose and it's serving it really well, I think you'll love the Palaces of Carrera. If you like a little bit more flash in your game, you might still like the Palaces of Carrera, but it might not be a 10 times play game for you. It might be a, a... two or three times play game for you. And I think you'll really enjoy it still because there's big moments. It's just the big moments don't have the legs to run forever. And while it's difficult to recommend you run out and, you know, get uh, the $100 all in pledge for this game on the secondary market, as it would be to recommend paying that much money for any game ever, it's very easy to recommend getting on Board Game Arena and checking this game out. Yeah, definitely. I really quickly will say some quick changes between the two versions that I think are interesting. They're very small. One changes, uh, the starting resources get tweaked slightly, not huge. Um, when paying t- uh, for building blocks, instead of just using more of expensive types to build cheaper, you can use two of a less lucrative type to pay for the one step up, right? So I could use two of the worst, the black b- bricks as one blue, two yellows as a white. Okay, that's at, it falls in line with this design ethos of like give players more choices of like the advanced variant of the wheel. I, I think it's cool. Um, the number of starting buildings is different for each player count. I think that's a good change. When you play this game at four, the tiles, the building tiles running out is a really viable end game scoring condition or an, a game end condition. Whereas at two, it's really unlikely you're going to build all the building tiles. So the fact that the new version puts that tension back by reducing the overall number of buildings in two players. Cool. I like that change. Um, and the rest are sort of negligible. Yeah. Well, it's. I thought one was like, when somebody scores, you have the opportunity to score right then as well. Oh, maybe you do. Maybe I you think do. so. And I think if you do, you get like five points gotcha. or something like that. So it, it like ramps and then it, and it goes around it. the table where everybody gets the opportunity to score if you want to right then. And you don't have to, but it makes your action more efficient. And I think points more efficient if you do. So that really like ramps up, I think, the importance of tempo and like making sure like you're always putting yourself in position to score and not spending too much time just like building up a massive supply of blocks. I'd be interested to try it with the changes, uh, but it's hard to say whether or not they would improve the experience or not without, of course, playing the game first. 
Totally. But definitely, definitely some interesting changes for sure. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's always fun to see designers get to go back and rejigger their game with the advantage of, you know, nine or almost a decade of uh, retrospect. It's pretty cool. Also, I guess the upgrade tiles change slightly just in terms of costing. Do you have any closing thoughts before we go on to closing the book on the Palaces of Carrera? Do a quick what's in my mind segment to close and then send people off? I do not. I think we've really covered it. I think this is, and now I'm going, I'm going to say I don't, and then I'm going to give yeah, my yeah, yeah. classic. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no other thoughts other than this, yeah. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is that I think this is a game that is very intuitive to play. It's a game that has a tightly polished puzzle that is just like a joy to experience, exist in. Uh, and I think I'll continue to do after leaving this episode. If you're sick of games that reveal themselves after one play, play The Palaces of Carrara. Uh, and then maybe it will make you force you to consider if you actually feel that way. Because this game is tricky. It's interesting. It'll ask more of you than I think a lot of games uh, I often play do, even though it's as simple as it is. And that's really cool. It, it uh, I think, highlights some interesting mechanisms that I wish I saw other places. The scoring mechanism is so cool. Uh, the wheel is a good workhorse mechanism. The Palace of Carrera is a neat game that I'm really glad to have played. And yeah, try it on Board Game Arena. If you are interested or intrigued at all, you can come into our Discord and find uh, other players who are part of our Discord decision space playgroup and maybe play the Palaces of Carrera with them. But Jake, I have an important question for you. What is on your mind? So what's on my mind? I recently went to a bachelor party with a bunch of friends uh not a bunch of friends it was like four friends it, we tried to be as safe as possible we were mainly holed up in an airbnb the whole time uh and i brought a bunch of games to play and the game that was the biggest hit of all the games i brought was without a doubt liar's dice or peruto have you played liar's dice brendan no I haven't. I want to so badly. So this is like an amazing game and amazing in part because everybody who's probably listening to this podcast very likely already has this in their collection because all you need to play this game is five dice per player and a cup. So the way the game works is everybody rolls their dice or cup, slams it on the table in front of them, and then peeks to see what their die faces are. And then the game proceeds as a series of bets. So I might say, I think, Brendan, if we, if we were playing against each other, we'd roll our dice. And I'd say, I'd look at mine and I'd say, I think there are three sixes on the table. And then you have to make a bet or call my bluff. And you call your bluff in very dramatic fashion. You just lift up your cup to reveal your dice. Everybody playing will do the same and we'll count up. Are there three sixes out here? If so, you lose a dice. If not, I lose a die. And you play until only one person has dice remaining or a die remaining it is like a ton of fun super super exciting and just like an incredibly dramatic game i used to play this a lot with my friends in college before i was like heavily invested in the board game hobby and we absolutely loved it it's like amazing to play just over drinks or just casually hanging out and i was just like really delighted to see that it held up so well uh playing it this many years later uh, so yeah, I just, I mean, that, that's just kind of like something to, that I've been thinking about because, you know, I was, I was so excited to like, you know, show them some of these like more, you know, designer board games that I've been playing. I, I curated a ton for the event, but like without a doubt, the game that they love the most and were clamoring to play again, 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 was Liar's Dice or Peruto. I love that so much. That is so awesome. Everyone who's ever played Liar's Dice and Liar's Dice has like a reputation for being, I think, one of like the classic games, especially in certain parts of the world where Liar's Dice is played all the time at bars and right. Um, like you walk into a bar and you just hear like people like rattling dice and like yeah. slamming on the table. I, yeah, I just i I need to get it played. I feel like I really missed out by not playing it, but it's a game I want to play with people around a table. Right. right? It's about the cacophony of the dice and it really friends face. Yeah, it really is. And just like everybody, you know, we, we were playing with five people. So like everybody heckling and you're always like incent. All you want is to like, not be the person that is caught gets, bluffing. Is got caught bluffing or like that has to catch somebody else bluffing. Mm. Like all you want is the, the 
the game to proceed past you without like missing a beat and it's always like such a relief when you make a wager and the person after you is like okay well i'll wager this uh and you're just like oh thank god because i have no clue uh and it's just just like you know so much bluffing and counter bluffing that exists because i could say i have four threes right and i have zero threes yeah Uh, and and the next person looks down and they've got two threes they're like five threes for sure and they're like and it gets all the way back to you. It's like seven threes. You're like, ha ha. Like, <laughs> like I started something and it was a lie. I love too that your brinkmanship of a complete lie, like could bring someone else who would have been in a position to just tell the truth. Kind of like they then have to lie about their position. Yeah. Yeah. And then you kind of like around the table, like you're like, okay, well I know this person is like, he hasn't told the truth all night. So like, there's no way I can like use that information as like valid or like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And so it's like, it's just That's an awesome, great. awesome party game. Tons oh. of fun. And I think everyone should try it if you haven't at your next game night, because it's great with non-gamers, but it's also like super fun and engaging with like serious gamers as well that can like kind of like get into like the stats and the, you know, not the stats, but just like the simple uh, kind of probabilities, uh, knowing how many dice are out there and also like the bluffing, counter bluffing, that type of thing. Maybe one for Decision Spot A. Yeah, definitely one for Decision Spot A. Brent, is there anything on your mind or should we call it there? I think let's call it there. I'll save mine for next week. And I'll just say uh, thank you to everyone who has made it to this point in the episode. We really love making Decision Space. And there's been so much momentum with the show lately. Uh, I mentioned our Discord community once already. But if you're interested in playing games or talking about games with people who love games just like you, you should check out our Discord. Uh, There's over 100 people in there now. And there's async games on board game arena yukata and good conversations happening 24 7 that you don't have to pay attention all 24 7 uh in our discord which there's a link to it in our show notes and if you don't know what discord is it's just like an online chat room just like the ones from the 90s except it's awesome because there's cool people who have games there you can find myself or on twitter at burnside bh jake on twitter at jake fryd and you can find our show's twitter feed at decision spa decision spa We'd love for you to follow all of those accounts uh, or just the Decision Space account and get updates about what we're playing, uh, thoughts on games, on Board Game Arena, and maybe pictures of Jake's dog, Fred. Who knows? You should be so lucky. You can also find the show on Board Game Geek. We have a blog there, uh, Decision Space, and we also have all of our episodes there. Pretty cool. If you ever want to reach out to us, please feel free to do so on Twitter, Board Game Geek, or you can even email us uh, at uh, decisionspot at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We have a Patreon now where if you'd like to support the show, you appreciate the conversations we're having and what we're doing. You can get access to all sorts of cool behind the scenes content like our show notes, uh, pictures of Jake Dog's dogs Fred, and uh, other cool exclusives that have to do with our Discord and voting rights for the games we might cover on the show. Uh, also importantly, Jake, I'm running out of breath. Thank you to Hembry for their hit song, Reach Out, which they let us use as their intro and outro song. It's a banger. I think about it and listen to it on my runs, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Next week is Evolution Climate. Goodbye, y'all! Bye. Bye.